Sunday, January 21st, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) First up, Jenna Sessa Fox is joining us. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared online at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the Director of Arts and Culture Journalism Program at Cooney's Graduate School of Journalism and also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Good morning, Jan. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, Peter's going to jump in here with some uh, pre-recorded stuff a little later on. But of course, Peter Felicia is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. And his columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. And as well as we're doing an interview with uh, Lena Hall that was recorded earlier this week with uh, Matt Tamanini uh, over at Broadway World. Um, So we have lots and lots of uh, people visiting in today's show. With us today, we have a very special guest. Lena Hall is joining us by telephone. Uh, Broadway fans know Lena from uh, those little shows like Cats, 42nd Street, Dracula, (laughs) Tarzan, Dracula, Tarzan, Kinky Boots, and Hedvig, the Angry Inch, of course, where uh, Lena has uh, also went out to the left coast and, and performed there as well as Yitzhak and in the title role. So, Lena, thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So, you have uh, a new series um, <laughs> called Obsessed. Why don't you tell us what, what do you want us to know about Obsessed? Uh, well, Obsessed is uh, basically it's a, it's a music series where at the beginning of every month I release an album dedicated to one singular artist who I have been obsessed with at one point in my life, um, either an artist or a band. And uh, I do uh, their EPs. So either there's, there's either five, uh, four or five songs on each EP, depending on how many weeks are in the month. And um, each week I release a video that goes with one of the songs on that album. So it's basically it's a year long project, 12 albums um, and a video every single week uh, to launch the series. We launched it with Hedwig and uh, uh, basically like um, all the songs are pretty pared down. So, you know, they're very acoustic, um, uh, not a ton of instruments. It's all just to highlight the, the artist, uh, 
the way they use their vernacular, the way they write lyrics, and then also the chord progressions and how beautifully they wrote these songs or performed these songs, really, and made them famous. So um, some of them are, some of the songs per artist are really very famous songs, and other ones are very deep cuts, things that I listen to on repeat over and over again that kind of um, pull strong memories for me. I think I think all of us, you know, have certain artists or songs that we listen to and and um, they remind us of specific times in our lives and bring up really, you know, intense memories. And this is kind of like the start of, of my journey through all these memories that I have um, and my obsession with these artists and why they're important. Uh, and yeah, we started with Hedwig, which was natural because Hedwig has been the biggest life changer for me. Um, from when I saw it when I was 19 originally at the Jane street and to, to winning a Tony award to actually playing, um, Hedwig herself. And, um, I thought it, this whole series was, is a great way to kind of, um, send a love letter to these artists. And so Hedwig was my love letter to Stephen Trask and John Cameron Mitchell. So who came up with this idea of 12 albums in 12 months and and how did you sell it to, I guess, to uh, Ghostlight and, and Kurt? I had been releasing these little EPs that I did with Justin Craig, who also music directed and produced these albums, um, the Obsessed series. We had already started the Obsessed series um, last year. And at the beginning of last year, and uh, we started with had we we started with obsessed uh, Radiohead. We released an album and we did a show as as like an idea as a way to release the album. And then uh, we did another one, and then we were gonna do Hedwig. We did the show already. We had recorded the album. I was waiting for the master to come back um, from the album, and then Kurt stepped in and was like, "Wait, hang on, you know." I'm interested in releasing the Hedwig album, you know? And so I was uh-huh. like, Oh, okay. So I, Smart man. I sat and I met, yeah, <laughs> I sat and I met with him. So I, I put the whole album and everything on hold. I sat and I met with him and, um, and I also met with uh, Kevin Gore, the head of um, Warner Chapel. And uh, we all uh, were talking about, you know, the Hedwig obsessed album, the idea of, the obsessed albums and the concerts that go hand in hand. And, and, uh, and then, you know, Kevin had watched these YouTube videos that I had been, I had released at the beginning of the year that was called stripped. And it was only, you know, 19 videos that I released. And he was like, why didn't you do it for the whole year? And I was like, well, I wanted to, but you know, I didn't have the money and, um, and we could only get these, you know, 20 songs recorded because we, we only had two days to do them. And it was totally like, off the cuff, last minute kind of thing. And he was like, well, what if we just combine the two ideas of Obsessed, the album and concert series with Stripped, the video series, and we kind of do it all in one thing. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So um, so we decided that it would be fun to do an artist a month and then however many songs were dictated by whatever whatever month that was, you know, however, however, however many Fridays were in that month. And so there you have 50, 52 songs. He was, they were interested in it because, you know, I was like, well, we probably could record it really fast, the whole thing, have it filmed and recorded all in the same time. And then, um, uh, you know, and then have an entire year's worth of content for everyone um, and do it in a short period of time 
you know, very economically too, and it still be a really stellar project. And, uh, you know, they were curious as to what that timeline was. It took us eight days to record and film the entire year worth of content. I had a lot of faith in myself. Um, (laughs) 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 We recorded each song, took about three takes, give or take, but, you know, averaging, it was about three takes per song. Um, I wanted to keep a really live feeling about the vocal takes because I... You know, I, I think that it's, you know, vocals can get so overproduced and overfixed by auto-tune and all this stuff that we can do on the computer now that I feel like we lose the essence of the performer. And so I was like, we won't use any auto-tune. We'll use full takes. You know, it's fine. I have enough confidence in myself that I think we can do this. And uh, and we ended up perfectly on time. Um, I did, yeah, I... I did each song about three times a piece. So I would say I sang around 162 songs in eight days. <laughs> and, um, and there was a point where I thought I wasn't going to be able to do it. Like, I think it was the second to last day. And I was like, Oh my God, I think I'm like not going to be able to get through. Um, but lo and behold, like, I think it was a head thing. Like I was in my, I was in my head a little. And then once I got out of my head, it was perfectly fine. And we were back to the, back to the races, but um, we finished on time and uh, even a little early, we filmed it at the same time. So, you know, for camera and angles, they wanted two takes per song. So that's kind of, we had to give them at least two takes per song. We would end up doing three. And then um, sometimes every once in a while, I'd need to like, do a phrase again here and there, but we didn't have a lot of time to really go back and get too precious with it. So I, you know, I kind of forced myself to really listen to the performance quality and say, okay, I love this, you know, okay, I'm okay with, you know, not pick it apart too much because if I was allowed too much time, I would pick every little thing apart and it would lose the essence of what I really wanted in the beginning, this kind of raw performance quality that you don't get a lot anymore with no auto tune and, you know, you're getting a real, I just want the audience to feel like they're really there. They're experiencing a concert. And so, and also with the videos, I want you to feel the connect between seeing what I was actually doing in the, in the um, recording studio and like being able to feel kind of the vibe and the energy of each recording and getting to have like a visual per, per song. So it's, it's an interesting idea, you know, it's, Something no one's ever done before, so we're going to see how it goes. <laughs> well, Lena, two of the two of the reasons that I love this project so much. One of them is the thing you talked about: how because you didn't have any time. Like these are <laughs> legit performances rather than you know commercially produced and sculpted things. So I love that from what we've heard so far from the Hedwig except I love that aspect of it. But the other thing that I love is that I think fans who have followed you, you know, throughout your career, but then also especially on social media, they know that to say it gently, you are multifaceted. There are so many different things that you do. And I feel like, especially from the, um, the people that you are obsessed with that you've announced that are going to be a part of this, we're going to get to see all sides uh, of Lena Hall. What when you started picking people, and I'm sure there were dozens, if not hundreds, of others that you considered. <laughs> how did you narrow it down to say, okay, here's the twelve that we're going to do for this first year, you know, and maybe save some for future years, please? 
Yeah, well, it was, you know, it was really tough. I was surprised. Um, we had about a month of planning before we started filming, so which is not a lot of time. So once we actually decided to go ahead and do the project, we had a month to get it all together <laughs> like a month to get our shit together right uh, before the day we we stepped into the uh the recording studio the scariest thing was actually getting a recording a recording studio that we could lock down for eight days mm -hmm. straight without having to like break anything down and uh and so while we while you know while we were getting everything together i had to choose all the artists which was very difficult um but i ended up That's really going it was very hard. It was hard not to do all of my like high school years because that, I mean, because <laughs> yeah. there's that, that nostalgic itself, factor. Yeah, just, absolutely. So, oh my God, I could do for days. I could do 90s for days. And there's a lot of 90s in there. But, um, <laughs> but I ended up wanting to have kind of a, uh, a wide array of artists that are from like, you know, the 60s all the way till now. You know, I have. I've got uh, Elton John and David Bowie and Peter Gabriel, you know, which is more old school. And then I have Beck and Pink and um, Jack White, which is much more, you know, current and now. And then I have everything in between. So um, I basically I, I wanted to keep the variety of, of artists more more broad. Um, and then as far as choosing songs per artist which was also very, very difficult. <laughs> um, there were, there were many factors that came into play. Um, there are some songs where I'm, I'm like totally obsessed with the song and I listen to it on repeat all the time, but it doesn't, um, it wouldn't translate well, kind of stripped down. So some, some songs I actually didn't get to record because I would prefer to hear them fully fully realized yeah. in a big production or something um so essentially i decided to pick the songs that were like a couple songs that are like bangers that are hits that most people know and then you know i tried to have at least you know one or two really deep cuts that not a lot of people know on there so it's a way to kind of um for fans of that artist who know the hits it's a way to get them to be uh, in intrigued and also inspire them to maybe dig deeper into that artist's catalog to, to listen to more of the B-side stuff. And then also not only that, I picked artists across the spectrum so that I could grab the fans that, you know, are like an old school, like David Bowie fan or Elton John fan and like then introduce them later to, you know, Beck or to, you know, Jack White or something or Chris Cornell and be like, you know, these, these artists are just as relevant and, and, you know, have a listen and take a look at their catalog. And it'll be interesting for you to kind of be like, oh, I love this song and I love the original recording. And it's kind of like, I wanted to bridge everybody, like a bridge to like yeah. get everyone to kind of start opening up their, their own musical taste. And see what else is out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think we could talk about Obsessed for many hours and hear all of the weird, crazy <laughs> stories that went into putting this together. But you have so much going on uh, that I, I have to ask some other questions because um, yeah, sure. on today on Broadway, we talked about it when it was officially picked up. I love the Snowpiercer film. And so when it was yeah. picked up to series, like I was so excited um, this is a, a, I believe it's a prequel, right? Like prequel to the film. 
yeah, I mean, the film basically takes place with the the rebellion from the back of the train, and it, it follows the rebellion from the back of the train um, to the front, but uh, but you don't really get to know anyone else in the train at all. And and this this is like we're not using any of the same characters. Okay, um, gotcha. In the film, yeah, it's different, so it's not it's not like a prequel to these characters you know it's from like, the movie. It's um, like a companion the idea almost. Same, it's the companion, yeah, exactly. Um, it's it dives deeper into getting to know each section of the train and the people who are in those sections. Um, so it's the 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 TV show is much more about um, class wars within this, you know, uh, tiny um, ecosystem that they have to live in because the rest of the world is completely in, uninhabitable. So. Uh, it's uh i would say it's kind of like a star trek you know spaceship series <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's you know because it's a, it's a confined place there's nowhere you can't get out you can't go outside you know you can't run away you're in you're stuck in this small tiny ecosystem with everyone yeah it's well, about the, star trek about how they how they can sustain you know the train um through the years because people will eventually die or, or people are born, you know, it can't get overpopulated. It can't get underpopulated. It has, someone has to run something, you know, uh, forever for as long as they can keep the thing going. So it's this balancing act in this tiny little train. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us anything about your character, who you're, who you're playing? Cause we don't have a ton of information yet about, you know, the construct yeah, of the world of the series. Right. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of information out there. Um, and, and that's good because we want people <laughs> to discover. Yeah. There, there wants to be a lot of discovery on this. So uh, I can't tell you much other than um, I am a connection between the back and the front of the train. Okay. Exciting. <laughs> yeah. Exciting. <laughs> so you have uh all, all these things going on. Uh, you, you, you've recorded a year's worth of music and videos in eight days, uh, and then you've, you've committed to these concerts uh, w- once a month uh, down at Rockwood Music Hall. Um, yeah, they won't. They won't all be at Rockwood, but the okay. first two are at Rockwood. We're trying to. We're trying to figure out where else um, we're going to do them. I kind. I wanted. I wanted to do the concerts. Well, nationally. But, you know, eventually I want it to go all over the world. A lot of people are asking me to go to London and Australia, and I really want to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just got to figure out how to get there. <laughs> so, you know, so it, the first ones are at Rockwood. We just felt like it was a good venue to start at. And because I sold out so quickly, they, they just immediately put up another another show for sale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, you know, you could, you know, go to 34th Street and just do Madison Square Garden, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> eventually <laughs> i i hope so oh my god eventually wow uh, that would be unreal <laughs> <laughs> so my uh my my thought here is is that uh you are firing on all cylinders and you seem to have been firing on all cylinders for a bunch of years here you got to take care of yourself so what have you been doing um, what have I been doing? I've been on a life quest that's been very interesting. So when I was doing Hedwig, 
my life was very different than it is now. Um, it was very chaotic. I had a lot, um, you know, I go out a lot. I, I didn't really take care of myself. Um, I didn't really eat well, you know, all these kind of things that everything was always so overdramatic. Um, I had a terrible relationship happening and, um, and, uh, after, after I won the Tony Award, I think something clicked in my mind, like, oh, wait a minute. My voice is, you know, my voice and my body, this is, this is my business. You know, this is what, uh-huh. this is what is sustaining me here. You know, this is very important. It's just important for me and for my art and for, for basically as a business, you know, um, to take care of myself. So I ended up, uh, I changed my diet first. I ended up uh, going vegan and, um, oh and that's, yeah, I know that, that did a lot. I really love it so much, you know, and people ask how vegan are you? Well, <laughs> I, I guess I should say I'm an ovetarian cause I still eat eggs and the occasional croissant because croissants, I just, they're <laughs> like, they're like, you know, they're like, um, they're like my one vice. <laughs> I'm wondering if, have you given up your Dunkin' Donuts vice? Yeah, totally over. I don't eat any um canned or like mm-hmm. i don't eat any processed food that is packaged or processed yeah. you know sure. so i got off the dunkin donuts which was really horribly unhealthy for me <laughs> <laughs> and uh and like really like cleaned up my diet and then from there um i i was really into the change that happened in my body and with my skin especially I've been on this quest for perfect skin my whole life. I've always had pretty bad skin. And, uh, <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, so I changed my diet and then, um, and then I, I, um, next I was, cause I was having, you know, anxiety attacks and panic attacks. And I was like, why am I so miserable? I should be feeling amazing. I want, you know, I won an award. I'm like at the top of my game right now. And, and everything is kind of feels like it's crumbling. So I, I started, you know, talking to a life coach. I didn't go to a therapist, but a life coach for me was the right fit. And um, from from there, then I decided uh, I was inspired by someone I look up to very, very, very much. And I saw, I stopped drinking. And that was a huge kind of life change for me because... I stopped drinking or, or doing drugs or doing anything like that. Um, and I've been sober for about two years and it has, thank you. It has completely changed my life. My life is not so crazy dramatic anymore. I have much more focused. I, I have so much more, I guess, you know, self-worth and, um, happiness is very calm and relaxing (laughs) you know for the first time I'm in a really supportive relationship and I think it comes from myself supporting myself you know feeling really um uh good about myself and feeling really good in my own skin and it took me a while to get there you know it was it's a long journey and I'm still working on it but um but I I love I love where I am right now it's it's like there's so much going on in my life and, and really amazing things. And and what's so great about it is that there's not one single day I don't wake up in the morning where I am 
upset at anything. You know, I wake up every morning. I'm so happy. I wake up early in the morning. I'm happy to be alive and I'm grateful for everything that's going on in my life. I'm grateful for my past and all I've learned. You know, it's like this big sense of uh, gratitude to the, to the world has just kind of come over me. Whereas before I was feeling really maybe entitled or something like that. And it was making me bitter and angry there now is a big flip of the script and I'm really understanding things much more. Hmm. (laughs) So that, that's awesome. I mean, your skin is your largest organ. (laughs) Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It really tells you everything. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're talking about how happy you are and, and how focused you are. I would imagine you would have to be very focused to do everything that you're doing. We've talked about Obsessed. We talked about Snowpiercer. But I, I'm not sure. It, you know, it, it kind of seems like right now the biggest thing that's about to explode for you is this movie Bex that's uh, yeah. getting released next month. It's like this – it's turning into this kind of big sleeper indie hit. You guys won – uh, I think it was the LA Film Festival, and now it's yeah. getting this nationwide release. And like this thing is, it seems like it's going to be something that kind of breaks through probably more than I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, but it just kind of seems like it's getting bigger than you would expect for an indie film. You're and you're the the, the star of this movie that's kind of a semi musical, and it's got this great cast mm-hmm. with a bunch of Broadway folks. Dan Fogler yeah. and and Christine Lottie is in it, and Sass mm-hmm. Goldberg and Mina Suvari, like. This seems like this is something that is just another thing that you add on to the albums and the TV show that it's just kind of like your career is blowing up in so many different other ways. Yeah, this is this is the perfect scenario for me. I mean, when I got this script, I didn't think much of it, but watching the film, I've I've watched the film now five times in theaters, <laughs> and uh, and every time I watch it, I'm like, oh my god, I was living that life, you know. It's interesting to it didn't really click when we were filming, but um, you know, I'm I'm a, there's there's an undertone of of um, alcoholism in the film, and uh, my character is basically fighting with that uh family disease and uh and um and that was something that like looking back on I'm like oh I was fighting through that same thing there's a there's an interesting thing where it's like life imitating art you know or art imitating life but um you know for me there's always these these parallels that I don't see it in the moment um until after I'm out of the project then I'll see parallels. Like I never saw parallels between me and Yitzhak, you know, like why would I? And then when I, when I left, when I left the show and I looked back on it, um, I was like, Oh, there's met, there were many parallels happening at the same time with that character and in my life. So what's interesting is Bex was definitely like a parallel to my own life um, that I was kind of fighting for at the time. So um, for me, this movie, you know, it's, it was like the perfect thing that came along at the perfect time. Um, I wanted to do something that incorporated everything that I love. So performing live and singing and also acting and then also being a film clearly. And, uh, and this was, this was the one project that really like hit the nail on the head. And I loved the storyline. I loved the character. I loved how flawed she is. Um, uh, my favorite kind of character is the antihero, the one 
you really want to hate, but you can't because you you relate Seems so right. deeply to all the pain and everything that person's <laughs> going through <laughs> and all the stupid mistakes, you know, um, because it's human. And uh, and then, of course, the music. I just love the music. I think the soundtrack is stellar. Um, I always say I kind of compare the movie to Once um, okay. because, mm. yeah, the, the intimate indie nature of it and also the – the music is also very intimate in both in, in backs. Um, and another thing I love about the movie is that um, they ended up using my live vocals as the tracks. Very cool. Instead of, instead of, um, instead of doing voice. So instead of doing like a lip sync over something I had pre-recorded, they ended up using just the live vocals, which is really cool. So to me, it just kind of, it marries everything that I love to do. My career right now is like doing something that I was told could never happen, um, <laughs> which is, you know, being successful in all these different areas of everything that I do. You know, I used to be told that I had to pick one. You have to pick one. Either you're going to be, you're going to be a music or a pop or, you know, a recording artist or you're going to be a TV star, or you're going to be a movie star, or you're going to do Broadway. And I'm like, but I don't want to pick one. Like, why does anyone have to pick one thing? Like we can, it's all art. It's all kind of the same. It's just different, different areas of kind of the same thing. And so for me, this year is kind of just like, it's brilliant. I'm, I'm, I'm so like overwhelmed and like thankful that just something like this could all happen at once, you know? <laughs> But yeah, I'm excited about this movie. It was received really well. It's the first lead role you know I've ever done, and um, I can't wait for everybody to see it. And I'm interested to see kind of the reaction that it gets. It's done. I mean, it did really well at the festival circuit. So you know, one never knows what what will hit an audience in a certain way. And so we'll definitely see how it does when it actually comes out and everyone can see it. <laughs> so you've set your um... You've kind of sketched out where you're going to be in the next 12 months doing uh, concerts and supporting Obsessed and your TV show and yeah. the, the movie, uh, things like that. Have you uh, any inklings or thoughts or any wants of any particular projects uh, in the Broadway realm? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I have one. I did. I mean, it might not. You know, the scheduling thing, that's yeah. the hardest mm -hmm. part about all yeah. of this is that it's the scheduling thing. So I'm still waiting to hear, you know, when we're going to film Snow, the rest of Snowpiercer. We did the pilot already, so now we have to film it. And we're going to film in Vancouver, which um, is not close to New York. So it's not like I could just um, come home, you know, like come to a Broadway show at night after my filming. <laughs> So, you know, uh, but I did, I, I did do the reading and the workshop of the share show, the share musical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if, if I had it my way and like, I could do like literally do everything and really have like this big, I, this big dream of mine, I'd be able to open it on Broadway, but later this year when it's, it's slated to open in the fall, but, um, but I don't know if that'll work out or if they would take a chance like that. It's, it's asking a lot. And I totally understand, <laughs> like, like <laughs> if it's a, it, it's such like at this point, it's like, it's a pipe dream and it is a big ask, but it would be, you know, it'd be amazing. And of course, like, I love playing Cher. There's, she's amazing. And, 
um, she's such a strong woman and a really interesting person and just everything about her. It, it, the more I, I kind of got into playing her, the more fun I was having and the more I just love her. So it was really cool. I got to meet her and, and it was really cool to work on that project. And I hope it does so, you know, so, so well with or without me. Like I'm such a cheerleader for that show. Well, Lena, thank you so much for uh, spending so much time with us on Broadway Radio. We really appreciate it. We'll have links to uh, Obsessed, and uh, we'll also put links to <laughs> Snowpiercer and Bex and everything else yeah. on Lena Hall with uh, websites and social media and things like that to stay in touch with her so we can see when Great. she's off to Vancouver and London and Australia <laughs> and uh, Cleveland. <laughs> Hey, hold on. Cleveland. Don't, don't knock Ohio. Don't knock Ohio, James. Stop it. Leave my home state alone. I am not knocking Ohio. You know, John Lithgow's from Ohio. So, so nice. <laughs> All right, Lena, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon, okay? Yeah, thank you. Bring me the Sacha blue jeans and designer underwear. Dress up like the disco dancing jet set in the line room. And if you got some sugar for me, sugar daddy, bring it home. Well, the thrill of control, like the rush of rock and roll. It's the sweetest taste I've known. If you got some sugar, bring it home. First up in the reviews, uh, Jan and Michael and I got to see John Lithgow's Stories by Heart. Jenna talked about it last week, so Jenna, jump in if we say something uh, totally that contradicts what you're gonna, what you said already. So, Michael, Will why do. don't you get us, uh, Michael, get us started with this? Yeah, well, one good thing about this show is that it reminds us of the correct pronunciation of his last name, which <laughs> I have had great difficulty remembering, even though he once told me personally. But uh, it is, in fact, apparently Lithgow. Uh, the, the full title of the show is now John Lithgow Stories by Heart. Uh, he has been doing this one-man show for quite a few years now in theaters – in various places all over the country and for all I know in other parts of the world. Uh, I, I saw it in 2008, a one-act version of it at the Mitzi Newhouse. And interestingly enough, it was then called Stories from the Heart. So I I think that's interesting in itself because both of those titles really apply to what's happening here. He um, – is he presents two stories from an anthology called Tellers of Tales, an anthology of short stories that was published many, many decades ago, edited by Somerset Maugham. And this is a book from which Lithgow's father used to read stories to him, and he has lots of affectionate memories of that. Uh, Jenna reviewed the show last week, and she talked. Uh, I basically agree with her that for me the most wonderful, interesting, and moving parts of the show were not the actual presentation of the stories, although those are very well done, but Lithgow's memories of his uh, father and to a lesser extent his mother and uh, how this was such a bonding experience when his father would read these stories to him. Uh, so I, I think that – but the audience really – 
really very much seemed into it. I, uh, it, for whatever that's worth, I, I, it seemed like there, there was a great amount of enjoyment. The first, uh, story is called The Haircut by Ring Lardner, and that takes up most of the first act. Uh, an interesting thing about that is it's written in the form of a monologue given by a barber uh, in a small Midwestern town in the 1920s. So the fact that it's written as a monologue obviously <laughs> uh, lends it towards theatrical presentation, and Lithgow does a really good job of of characterizing this barber and doing the sound effects of the uh, uh, lathering, you know, the preparing uh, to shave and haircut someone and making the noises of the of the uh, the blade on the on the strop and things like that um act two is a very different story type of story called uncle fred flits by by pg woodhouse and that's an extremely british story and in that one uh, that is not a monologue so he gets to characterized several different characters and uh, and I really enjoyed his the way he differentiated among those characters in terms of voice and his British accent or accents I should say uh, for the various characters were really well done um, the the show is uh, of course very enjoyable in terms of the acting and Lithgow's ability at mime and dialects and sound effects, as I mentioned. So I think that um, that it will be very enjoyable for fans of Lithgow. And it's a it's a it's a different type of a show that uh, that, as I say, has had success in many places. And I think that it will be enjoyable by lots of uh, theater goers. It's directed by Daniel Sullivan, and the Roundabout Theater Company is presenting it at the American Airlines Theater. Okay, Jan, what did you think? I enjoyed it a lot less than Michael did. <laughs> um, the There's no doubt that John Lithgow is a master uh, actor and so I enjoyed his performance but like Michael and Jenna I preferred parts of the presentation when he was talking about his family and my mind began to drift uh, during the stories and particularly during the Uncle Fred story I had a difficult time following it um there were lots of characters and lots of different accents and I would and it's a very long story so I would dial in and dial out but I was so intrigued by his reminiscences about his parents that I um, came home and downloaded the audiobook uh, of his memoir, which is called Drama, an Actor's Education. And of course, Lithgow himself narrates the book that he wrote. And he is, first off, a wonderful writer, just sentence by sentence, a wonderful writer. And you get the full story of this very complicated relationship between him and his father. And you get to trace his development uh, primarily as a stage actor. He talks a little bit about the movies. He mentions certainly the television series 
third rock from the sun, but he really focuses on his theater career. And it's, it's a fascinating journey. And so uh, I would say, and the people in the audience the night that I saw it were sort of split. Uh, there was a man sitting next to my husband who was doubled over with laughter. He he just really enjoyed himself. And then the, there were two couples, not together, uh, sitting in front of us, very different couples, um, a sort of younger um uh, uh, same-sex couple, two guys, and a, a slightly older male-female couple. They both ran out during intermission and did not come back. So I think it, for some people, it will be very enjoyable. Obviously, he's been doing this forever, for like 10 years. Um, the But you can also get the real heart of the... Uh, sort of what motivated the play uh, from the book. And you get to hear Lithgow read it, and it costs like a tenth of what it costs to go see the play. I, I certainly agree about the split. In fact, a friend of mine had seen the show before I did, and I asked him you know, for his general opinion, and he said, bring a pillow. <laughs> oh, so I thought, oh, gosh. And I... <laughs> Yeah, I also had had uh, quite a bit of difficulty following, uh, but uh, but I thought maybe it was just my ADD or whatever it is. That I had. <laughs> uh, and it did seem to me that the night I went that a lot of people were really into the stories, especially the second one. There were quite a few laughs. So it will be uh, this is not for everyone. And uh, you just need to know exactly what you're in for, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, hopefully we've at, at least done a good job of ex of explaining that part and then you can decide if this is something that will appeal to you or not so um i liked it a whole lot less than jan did oh gosh <laughs> yeah dang <laughs> uh, i and it made me to the point i was angry when i left the theater wow. I, I was I was so annoyed that wow. that this was on a Broadway stage, and just like everybody else, I really was engaged by his stories of his family. But the other two the two pieces he performed, I felt were self indulgent, and that better to do one than two of them. Mm. And perhaps that this is something that works in a small space or even at a dinner party, but not on a Broadway stage. Uh, uh, it was painful, and I, I wished I wished angry when I left the theater that that I, we had spent two and a half hours watching this. Yeah, I did. Uh, well, two hours, but but still, um, <laughs> uh, I did not. It may, it may have seemed like two and a half. I did not see the the apparently one act version at the Mitzi Newhouse. I wonder what the content of that was. I, I know that he's been working on it quite some time. I, it can't have been both of these stories complete. I, uh, so I don't know. Maybe he did excerpts, or maybe there were. Maybe it was one story. Maybe it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure we can find reviews of that that will tell us. I didn't get a chance to do that. And uh, and it was so – it felt like such a missed opportunity because John Lithgow. Mm -hmm. I, it's John Lithgow right there 20 feet away <laughs> from us. Uh, uh. And, and, and the stories of his family, I felt that should be 
written out. And I'm really excited for this uh, recommendation, Drama and an Actor's Education by John Lithgow. Uh, I'm going to download that and listen to that and because I'm such a huge fan and I just really dislike this show. And I felt as though this show was you know, wedged in there because, you know, Roundabout had an empty stage for a little bit and, you know, we can pull this out and dust it off and put it up on its feet. And the audience was enormously rude. Enormous. Oh, Uh, Oh, People sitting in front of me, uh, uh, octogenarians uh, who... uh, Um, You know, I don't know if it's rude or just what. This woman sat in front of us, let her phone ring and ring and ring and ring and ring. And John stopped the show and he said, you know, uh, he was he was talking about his father passing away and this phone was ringing. And he's like, I think he's calling right now. Uh, And this woman just like, you know, she was sitting four feet in front of me. And uh, she took out her phone and she looked at it and put it back and it was ringing. And then she was getting voicemails, uh, the the, oh. message, the voicemail message. <laughs> and then somebody was texting her and texting her. Te- and I was no. like, turn. Oh my and God. people were saying, turn the phone off. And this was three or four people in the, uh, three or four different times during the show. Anyway, so it just added to my anxiety of watching this this Ugh. legend on stage who I adore in a show that I hated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I get think the audio book. It'll make you yeah, feel better. Thank really you, Chan. <laughs> I think we will, would all have, well, or <laughs> I'm speaking for myself, I, I would have rather have seen Lithgow in a wonderful revival or new play. But as James mentioned, this is actually one of two one-person shows that The Roundabout is now presenting on Broadway in large theaters. And it does seem pretty obvious that they just That's need... right, the, with the like other, Rizamo. Yeah. Yes, yeah. like Rizamo's show. Um, and so it does seem obvious that they needed things to uh, plug up their season. And, uh, and it's obviously uh, easier and less expensive to do a one-person show. So, And right, uh, and both of them had been done before. So both they were like yes. prepackaged. Yes, yes. Let me ask you guys a, uh, a question. Um, have artistic directors always made an announcement for the show? Because oh, I – no. Because Todd yeah. Todd Haynes has has been that recorded announcement of Todd Haynes of the yeah. roundabout that you're referring to that has been in place uh, for a while. I think maybe sometimes they they still alternated with ones recorded by other people, like sometimes the actors in this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, but he, I, I know I've heard that one several times. I, I I I don't recall hearing it before, and I thought to myself. You know, because Oscar Yuskis uh, has been doing pre-recorded right. announcements, and I was wondering if there's little s- rivalry between the <laughs> ads of the large, major uh, <laughs> nonprofits. <laughs> All right. So uh, next up, why don't we get uh, Jenna in here to tell us about Jamaica up at Harlem Rep? Sure. All right. So, yes, Harlem Rep has been running Jamaica since the fall, possibly the summer. I, I should double check when they started uh, the run of the show. Uh, this is It was to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the musical's uh, Broadway debut, 
uh, with Lena Horne back in 1957. The show is a slight little fable about a young woman from a small town on a small island next to Jamaica. In spite of the title, the show actually does not take place in Jamaica itself. Uh, She is wooed by a rich New Yorker and then has to decide if she wants to stay home with the boy next door or go to the big city. And you can just guess, this being a fable musical from the 50s, what she decides to do. Uh, The show ran for about a year and a half in 1957. Apparently, it was originally created as a vehicle for Harry Belafonte, but he dropped out of the project. So Lena Horne stepped in. And from what I've been able to learn since last night when I saw the show... The original script was scrapped when uh, Harry Belafonte left, and a new one was created for Lena Horne, but it was very last minute, and it was mostly created as just a chance for her to sing. And uh, the original script was somewhat resurrected for a revival at Prince Music Theatre 10 years ago. I'm not quite sure what version of the script is on stage right now at Harlem Rep. The song listing on IBDB is different from what I saw last night, and at least one character's name is different. So anyone expecting a recreation of what audiences in 1957 got to see might be a little disappointed. The show has been specifically updated to present day. They mentioned that it takes place in 2017. Uh, there are explicit references now. Uh, verses, I think, were added to some to uh, push the button and some other songs mm. to contemporary issues. Uh, there are animations, uh, courtesy of uh, Edward Corsino. He created a lot of backdrops and animations to uh, serve as a backdrop for the songs and the scenes. So they. You know, when they're talking about uh, ignore the atom, don't drop the bomb, a whole song about uh, nuclear war. There are specific pictures of Trump and uh, Kim Jong-il up on the back wall. So it's definitely very contemporary. And seeing it on the day of the uh, of the Women's March was rather interesting. As slight as the story is, it does say something about women's dreams and goals and how men can manipulate women and women manipulate men in turn. It can be a good piece to spark discussions about gender roles and communications, but honestly, that's kind of a stretch. It's it's a vehicle for you know, a very good cast to show off their stuff, to sing that beautiful Yip Harburg and Al- Harold Arlen score, and you know, they really do sing beautifully. They sound lovely. The music is primarily pre-recorded, although I did see a pianist and a drummer Uh, in the corner for Act 1. I'm not sure what happened to them in Act 2. So there was some live music, some pre-recorded. I'm not really sure how it was uh, divided up. Uh, Taylor Ray Rivera does a very nice job as Savannah, the uh, heroine who dreams of going to the big city. Anlami Shaw is her her lover, Coley. He does very nice work as well, although... I would recommend he work on his projection just a little bit for a few scenes, but his intensity for a lot of the moments was really, really nice. Barbara Lee Noel is really lovely as the soubrette, uh, Ginger. She's very coy and charming and very funny. Uh, Chris Price is her uh, her intended Cicero, and they have really good chemistry together. They're very, very charming, and their scenes are very cute. Paula Galloway is uh, Savannah's mother and has some very nice moments, uh, good intensity. Uh, Daniel Fergus Tem- Temolinus, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing his, uh, his name, he is uh, the nominal villain of the piece, the 
businessman from New York who might come and destroy this uh this nice little town. Uh, he does, he finds some nice depth in the role as a very savvy man, but he's not explicitly evil all the way throughout. He's just crafty and he knows what he wants and he knows how to get it. And I really liked his take on that part. And, uh, Tremal McClary is very, very cute as the heroine's younger brother, Kiko, uh, really fun scenes, good comic timing. So it's a really, it's a good cast. And considering that this company is largely non-equity, uh, they really do some very strong work. Uh, Keith Lee Grant uh, did the direction and the choreography. His choreography is very, very strong. His direction was somewhat, I would say, uneven. He has this nice trend. This is also in the uh, Colored Museum of having the actors move around the audience. So several scenes take place on platforms within the audience, which makes the audience part of the story. It makes us part of this island. And I really like that concept of blurring the line and making us part of this community that we're seeing what's happening when a hurricane is bearing down. We're meant to feel it. We're meant to be frightened because this is happening around us. They're standing right around us and uh, they're frightened and that spreads. That makes us frightened as well. It's a really nice effect. So that I thought was very strong, but uh, there were some other elements that I thought could have been a bit more powerful. The, uh, again, some, some actors, when they were whispering, were not stage whispering. They just whispered. And if I hadn't been sitting right up close, I would not have been able to hear what they were saying. Uh, so there were a few elements here and there that I think could have been rehearsed a little bit more. But from what I understand with this repertory company, uh, several actors are moving in and out and they're constantly, you know, they keep going. They just keep recreating it each time. I, I'm very I'm very grateful that Harlem Rep is reviving these shows and giving them new life and making them affordable for the wider community to see. And I really hope they'll continue to do that going forward. All right. So we talked about Harlem Rep uh, back uh, a few months ago with uh, Peter had seen a show up there. Just to remind you that they're doing a bunch of shows in Rep, uh, not only just Jamaica, which is playing through March 24th, but also The Wizard of Oz, A Raisin in the Sun, uh, In the Heights, and The Colored Museum. The Colored Museum is the show that Peter had reviewed. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes and uh, information, more information on Holland Rep. Thank you. And I I should also mention, I do know somebody in the cast, which was one reason why I wanted to see this, but uh, that has not colored my my take on uh, my criticism at all. I promise. Okay. So, uh, Jan, you got over to Irish Rep to see Disco Pigs, which I'm dying to find out what that title means. So why don't you tell us? This is a, a revival of a play that Enda Walsh did in 1996. And um, I think a lot of listeners will know Walsh as the book writer for the musical Once. This is very different. Uh, this is a two-character play, and it's uh, the story of these two young people who were born on the same day in the same hospital, and they grow up together uh, almost in the way that twins develop their own world and sometimes their own language. And and so they have this incredible uh, connection. And we trace their lives until they're 17. 
the problem, uh, at least for me, is that the the actors, and I believe they're both Irish, um, uh, speak in a real thick Irish accent. So it's difficult to understand what they're saying at level one. But at level two, the characters create their own language. So you're hearing this created language between the the two characters done in Irish accents. I felt as though I were like at a foreign movie and somebody forgot to turn on the subtitles. However, the performance, the, the production is really riveting. It's high energy, really kinetic. It's directed by a man named John uh, Hadar, I think, uh, is how you would pronounce it. But the real credit has to go to the movement director, uh, Naomi Saeed. The two actors never stop moving. And so even if you're not... Uh, understanding the dialogue you're 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 it's almost like watching a silent movie and i don't mean in the herky-jerky way of uh that we sometimes think of of silent movies but you're watching them reenact this relationship between these two young people and they were very lucky in their in the casting the young woman is played by an actress named Ivana Lynch and the young man by Colin Campbell. And Colin Campbell is uh, really one of those people that you cannot take your eyes off. He is just so emotive with just his uh, body language. This only lasts 75 minutes. Uh, it's obviously something that you really need to be prepared to go into because if you're going in expecting a naturalistic performance, even being able to understand what the actors are saying, you're going to be very disappointed or maybe like James angry when you leave. Um, but it's if you're up for just something very different, very short, very brief, and you're interested in Walsh, who has done a lot of other things uh, besides uh, once, and you're interested in his career. I think he also has a play out at BAM right now. Um, and so the title, finally, of Disco Pigs, they refer to themselves as Pig and Runt, the two characters, and they go to disco raves where there is wild, exuberant uh, dancing. And so the title describes uh, who they are. I'd love to hear someone else go um, and, and, and see this and see. I've looked at, I've looked at other reviews, and they, they are all over the place. Um, and I think it's really it, what the expectation is when, when you go in. Uh, it's not – it's sort of – odd because it's not my what I consider my kind of show I tend to bend for the more naturalistic but I 
on some weird level, enjoyed it. <laughs> Irish rep uh, is always hit and miss for me. Uh, you know, the, the Finian's Rainbow, I really enjoyed. And then they, mm-hmm. had, they had this Matthew Broderick show where he, Matthew and the other actor had this very thick accent that it was really hard for me to understand everything he's saying, uh, which, you know, we, we know that Matthew Broderick doesn't have that accent. So to make it so thick that we don't understand it, I, it's a strange choice. Mm. So, uh, Michael, you going to, Jenna, you going to get over to Irish rep to see disco pigs. Do you have any plans? I, I would love to. Yes. I hope so. Yeah. Okay, so we'll have to come back and uh, report on that. Yeah, it just opened um, last week, I think January 9th, and it's going to play, I think, through March, so there's time for you guys to get there. Okay, so as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Peter is not here this week. He is out in California, uh, but he wanted to review Hinda Wakes. Michael also got a chance to see it, so uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on Hinda Wakes, and then we'll play Peter's review. Yes, I'd be happy to. This is one of the finest productions I've seen at the Mint Theater Company, and their track record is so excellent overall anyway that that's really saying a lot. Uh, This Hindle Wakes is a 1912 play by Stanley H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N, so I I could be Houghton or it could be Uton, directed by Gus Kaikanen. And I did review the show for Talk and Broadway. So I thought what I would do is just read my first paragraph and then say a few things and then maybe we can lead into Peter. Uh, here's what I wrote as my first paragraph. The year 1912 was a bad one for certain transatlantic ship passengers. And mm-hmm. based on what happens in the first scene of Stanley Uton's 1912 play, Hindle Wakes, currently on view in a rare revival by the Mint Theater Company, we may guess that neither is it going to be a good year for young Fanny Hawthorne, played by Rebecca Noel Brinkley. She has just returned from a holiday to her family home in the Lancashire home of Hindle, only to have her suspicious mother, Sandra Shipley and concerned father, Ken Marks, obtained Fanny's admission that her sojourn included a sexual liaison with Alan Jeffcoat, Jeremy Beck, son of the wealthy mill owner for whom both Fanny and her dad work. Fraught as this situation is by the standards of early 20th century British views of premarital sex, not to mention the class difference between the Hawthorns and the Jeffcoats, and on top of that, the employer-employee relationship. Another major complication is that Alan's engagement to one Beatrice Farrar, Emma Gear, would seem to prevent him from, quote, making an honest woman, unquote, out of Fanny. Uh, so this is a really well-written play, and so fascinating to see this this piece from 1912 revived. Uh the Mint does so many uh, less than familiar old plays, and, and some of them are interesting because of how dated they are, and, but many of them are interesting because of how dated they are not. And this one de- definitely falls in the latter category to see um, how these characters, all of these characters react uh, 
so there's the, the 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 two people who who have the little sexual liaison, and there are both sets of parents, and and then the woman to whom the young man is engaged, and a couple of other characters as well, uh, to see the way that they react to what happened and and what they think should happen next, is is so fascinating and not necessarily what you would expect from each of the characters. I think I'll, I'll leave that as my lead into Peter's review and he can tell you more about it. You know, there's a regional theater that does new plays. And um, I will say that most of my fellow critics and I have gone there and at intermission, we usually say, where do they find them? Where, where, because the plays are just so terrible. That said, uh, I asked the same question the other night while seeing a wonderful production, and that's Hindle Wakes at the Mint Theatre Company. Where does Jonathan Banks find these plays? I just have no idea where he does it because, I mean, these are obscure plays that he finds, and they always turn out to be terrific beyond belief. Okay, so Hindle Wakes, strange title. Play first produced in 1912, ran a month, and that was it. Uh, Stanley Houghton, the playwright, died young, so that's why we don't know him. And at first glance, this would seem to be a very boring play, because let me give you the setup. So Fanny is a girl from a working class family, and she's impregnated by Alan, who comes from an upper crust family. Well, what's going to happen now? Obviously, there's a situation where, and especially in these days, uh, we're talking about the man has to make good on the promise. But on the other hand, Alan's father, who um, is Nathaniel, does not feel that he should get his son out of this mess. He really believes in doing the right thing. Now, when Nathaniel was just starting out, he was friendly with Christopher, who is Fanny's father. And even though they've grown apart, because that usually happens when one person does extraordinarily well and the other person doesn't, it's even more complicated because Christopher works for Nathaniel. So the the surprise is that you fully expect that Nathaniel is going to say, well, we'll get out of it, we'll pay money, we'll do this, we'll, we'll get uh, some of my other workers to testify that they've had her too, all that kind of stuff. It could happen. But here's a noble man who really insists on his kid doing the right thing. However, there are many, many, many more surprises in this um, two-hour, ten-minute play that must have really shocked audiences so much in 1912. That's what you have to do when you see this play. You have to go back in your mind to 1912. By contemporary standards, yeah, this may be ho-hum, but if you really go back to when it was first produced, it's startling to think of what an achievement it is. And speaking of achievements, let me also mention Gus Kakainen's direction, which is perfect. And here's Jonathan Hogan, who many of us remember from the um, heyday of Circle Rep, playing Nathaniel, do astonishingly well. And uh, the two mothers, uh, because of course Nathaniel has a wife and so does Christopher, are really very effective too. Jill Tanner, certainly another veteran of uh, a number of uh, wonderful shows, plays Mrs. Um, Jeffcoat, that's the uh, last name of uh, Nathaniel, which I should have made clearer. Anyway, um, and certainly just as well um, played is Sandra Shipley doing Mrs. Hawthorne. So so they're great, but really, it's a terrific show, and you certainly meet another object of uh, Alan's affection in Emma Gear, 
who plays Beatrice. Um, that's the girl he was going with, the girl he's engaged to, and yet he cheated on her um, to fool around with Fanny on um, this lark of a weekend. So I will admit that I'm not making it sound magnificent, but boy, you could have filmed a sprint commercial in that theater because pins could drop and they would resound even though the theater <laughs> um, at um, Theater Row, in which this is now taking place, may not be uh, the greatest acoustically, but boy, could you hear everything because everybody was just so gripped by this. So it's a short run show and that's why I'm bringing it up so you can get tickets now. God bless Jonathan Bank for doing this. It's amazing how he keeps pulling out one winner after another, but he does. And that's why you must attend, and he does deserve your attention. Okay, uh, Michael, you also got a chance to get over to the Friedman Theater to see the children. Uh, so tell us about this. This production opened uh, several weeks ago, so I, I won't say too much about it because we've already covered it. But I, I wanted to say, uh, I guess this is true of every show, but what we said earlier in this podcast about some of the other sh shows is certainly true here that your enjoyment of it will depend largely on what you expect. Uh, with some shows, it's easier to know what to expect because uh, um, either because they're, they're revivals of familiar shows or because of uh, they're based on movies or, or books or that, that we already know or uh, for any other reason. But this one, um, I think that the marketing of this production and some of the even a couple of the reviews I read might lead you to expect something other than what you actually get. It's a play by Lucy Kirkwood, uh, and it's the Manhattan Theatre Club has brought over the Royal Court Theatre production from London. Uh, the three characters are Francesca Annis, uh, the, are played by <laughs> Francesca Annis, Ron Cook, and Deborah Finley. Uh, this play is directed by James McDonald. And it's about these three characters' interaction in a seaside cottage in England uh, sometime after a major nuclear disaster. What we're told is that there was an earthquake followed by a tsunami, which uh, destroyed a nuclear reactor nearby and so this is about uh life after that disaster but um one one of the uh points of it i i guess and this is so amazing is that uh how people react even in the wake of such a huge disaster uh to uh, to a large degree uh, life day-to-day -day life uh returns to something like normalcy when this play opens you would not at first think that that, that we're talking about uh, uh, people who've been just been through a nuclear disaster that's that's really quite close to them uh, because you know this, the the rituals of everyday life uh, many of them need to remain the same and and they do um, so but my point was that I think that uh, this play uh, has been marketed and, and reviewed uh, to some extent as being extremely suspenseful. And I think I, I've even read it described as an echo thriller. There are some elements of that, but I think mostly it's more of a character study and uh, seeing how these people would react in this very extreme situation or the aftermath of this very extreme situation. Um, and it's about responsibility that 
uh, that we all have, and then I guess specifically that o- the older generation has to the children uh, of the world. That's where the title comes in. Uh, I think that the acting is superlative and the writing is really very, very skillful by Lucy Kirkwood. Uh, and it is uh, the the reviews overall, I would say, were stellar. So I definitely think it's worth seeing. I think uh, that it's going to figure probably in, in some of the award nominations at the end of the season. And I, I would definitely recommend it, but just make sure you know what you're getting into. All right. Uh, Jan, uh, you were going to tell us a little bit about Primary Stages Project, the, the Oral History Project. Uh, so tell us about that. It's been going on for uh, a while, but I just caught up with it. Uh, I was having dinner with a friend who remarked um, that she was part of this uh, project, and so I came home and uh, checked it out. Uh, Primary Stages, the theater company, its artistic uh, uh, director, uh, had this long-time project uh, that... um, Casey Childs, that he wanted to do, in which he wanted to really collect the history of the off-Broadway theater movement in New York that happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, really. And uh, he this was a long-time dream of his, he finally got some people to back him. And what he has done, uh, starting, I believe, in in like 2014, was to go around and talk to people who were part of this. It's an oral history. And he lets them talk as long as they want to talk. Uh, The first interview he did was with the actress Elizabeth Wilson, uh, who has since left us and that's another wonderful thing about this project is a number of the people that he interviewed are no longer with us and we have their memories of what it was like uh, to do theater in New York not Broadway not commercially driven excuse me and he's talked to Everyone from, uh, I'm sorry, the Elizabeth Wilson interview goes for about an hour, but Douglas Turner Ward, who was uh, one of the co-founders of the Negro Ensemble Company, had a lot to say. His interview goes on for four hours. So they let you talk as long as you want, as they want, and they put up the full interview and excerpts from the interview, and the excerpts run from maybe five to 15 minutes so you can get the essence of what someone said or you can get the 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 full interview itself it's a remarkable archive um he's just done a wonderful job uh the website uh cast uh about 15 uh highlighted interviews that change uh regularly and you see the pictures and you just click on and and uh hear what these pioneers of the off-broadway movement uh had to say there's also uh an alphabetized index so that you can hear what they have to say and it goes from people who were well-known actors austin pendleton 
Lois Smith to writers and composers like uh, Sheldon Harnick and A.R. Gurney, co-founders of uh, founders of various theater companies, uh, uh, Tanya Barzin of Circle Rep, Woody King of New Federal Theater, but it also has um, uh, people behind the scenes from group sales people who helped to sell those shows to people who ran restaurants where people where people in the uh, industry hung out. It is a really comprehensive and invaluable archive of that time. And um, we'll give you lots, obviously, there's lots of material there, Lots to uh, listen to if you're interested in it, but also, again, a wonderful preservation of that period so that people doing histories in the future will have all of these memories right there on this one uh, uh, website. It's really terrific. It really sounds uh, very cool. We'll have a link to that in the show notes so that you can uh, check it out there. Um, I wonder if... uh, uh, primary stages calls it off center. I wonder if there was any confusion between the city center's off center and I know. primary stages off center, and if there was any uh, ruffled feathers over that. <laughs> <laughs> Might be because <laughs> mm. it is a little confusing, but yeah. but but this is great. This is great, and I hope people uh, get a chance to enjoy it. Yeah, probably the artistic directors at Primary Stages and City Center will probably do voiceovers before the show starts. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. So, uh, Jenna, you got down to the Bowery, did you? And uh, saw saw some magic from uh, Nate Stanisforth. So tell us about that. Yeah, Nate Stanisforth is uh, Stanisforth. Sorry, is uh, on tour. And he was in New York City earlier this week at the uh, Bowery Electric, which is a usually a, uh, a music venue, but they do uh, open it up for comedy and magic. Apparently, he's promoting his new memoir called "Here Is Real Magic: A Magician's Search for Wonder in the Modern World." So he's going all over the country with gigs. Uh, this was a really great venue to see a magic show because it's a very small, intimate room. And I was maybe at the most uh, 10 feet away from the magician uh, throughout much of the show. And much of the audience was you know, similarly right up close. It's really amazing to see, you know, to try to figure out how's he doing all the sleight of hand when you're just a few feet away and you really can't see it happening. And you know it has to be happening somehow, but you just don't see it. It's really cool. So it's a fun venue for seeing a magic act. Uh, Throughout the show, which is less than 90 minutes long, he discusses the nature of illusions and magic and how adults react to something unexpected compared to how children do. Uh, At one point, he told a story. Uh, After one trick, he said, I performed this a little while ago in another city. And after the volunteer from the audience went back to his seat, he suddenly stood up, yelled at Staniforth and said, "Uh, you're the devil and stormed out. Uh, Really freaked out by the magic trick. And then Staniforth, a little while later, showed a video clip of when he performed a show for preschoolers. And these kids were just so thrilled with everything. They just kept yelling, wow, wow. 
and it was wonderful. Uh, and he talks a bit about you know how they accept, they just joyfully accept that these tricks are cool, and maybe they're not real, but they're still they're awesome. They're not something where you need to yell, "You're the devil," and storm out. And he said, you know, adults have a much more set view of what reality is, and when that view gets a little shaken by an illusion, they get really freaked out. And so he comes back to this theme a few times during the show, and it really adds a layer of poignancy to the overall just to the coolness of all these illusions. Um, I haven't read his book, but I really would like to download it soon. I'd like to read his thoughts on why we lose our sense of wonder and magic as we grow up and how do we hold on to that so that we're as thrilled as preschoolers when we see a really cool trick. And it's a really fun show. It's going all over the country. So if you get a chance to see it, it's it's worth a visit. I'll have a link to Nate's website in the show notes. It's got all the uh, the tour dates and various information on it. It's really fascinating to take a look at it. Um, Michael, uh, the last thing of the morning is uh, Leonard Bernstein at 100 at the New York Public Library is an exhibit that's running through March. So tell us about this. Yeah, this is a wonderful exhibit. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard about it. It it opened several weeks ago, and it's going through March 24th, so you definitely have a chance to see it up at the New York Public Library at Lincoln Center. Uh, it The title of it is Leonard Bernstein at 100. Uh, 2018 is the Bernstein Centennial. Uh, it's also the Jerome Robbins Centennial, and, and, <laughs> and uh, as it happens uh, – Robbins is also uh, featured rather heavily in this exhibit because he he very famously worked with Bernstein on several projects, including the ballet Fancy Free, which then became On the Town, which they both worked on, and then, of course, West Side Story. Uh, let me just read the beginning of the description of this exhibit at the library, uh, from the library website, Leonard Bernstein at 100 celebrates the centennial of America's greatest classical composer and conductor, drawing from more than 150 photographs, personal items, papers, scores, correspondence, costumes, furniture, and films. Leonard Bernstein at 100 marks the official exhibit of the centennial and is the most comprehensive retrospective of Bernstein's life and career ever staged in a museum museum setting. Uh, it's great that this is at, uh, parenthetically, that is, this is at Lincoln Center uh, because Bernstein was so uh, so involved in the, the creation of, of that uh, in terms of he, he was the uh, uh, there, there is an, uh, a documentary a documentary I recently saw called The Opera House about the move of the Metropolitan Opera House from its old home on 39th Street to Lincoln Center. And uh, there are clips of a concert that was given on the site, the Lincoln Center's site, right before anything started to be built. And there's an amazing clip of Bernstein conducting the Philharmonic. So that that was really something. But uh, back to the description. Items on display in this uh, exhibit include Bernstein's conductor baton, his first childhood piano, the desk he used to compose West Side Story, handwritten scores for songs from West Side Story, including America Tonight and Maria, Bernstein's handwritten Harvard story 
study notebook from 1939 and more. In addition to the objects and the multimedia presentations, the exhibit includes a number of interactive displays designed to allow the museum visitor deep access into Bernstein's creative mind and music legacy. A listening bar enables visitors to explore some of Bernstein's most noted works, and a vocal booth gives visitors the chance to sing lead in West Side Story. I um, I didn't even get into the vocal booth because uh, it was so popular. There were several kids there who were who were uh, <laughs> going into it and spending a lot of time there, so I didn't get to see that. But uh, what I did see. Uh, most of the other ex- uh, parts of the exhibit I, I did see, and um, it, it's really quite something. And he, he really was a towering figure, needless to say, a, uh, a towering figure in American music. And as I said, this is a perfect venue for it. So I hope you get out there. It's Of course, it's free um, at the Lincoln Center Library through March 24th. All right, and uh, we'll have links to that as well in the show notes so you can check that out. Uh, One thing left to say before we wrap up this morning is that uh, Kinky Kinky Boots turned 2,000 yesterday. And so congratulations (laughs) to everybody over at Kinky Boots. They don't look a day over 1999. (laughs) So uh, before we wrap up for this morning and get on to Peter's trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of Broadway Radio. This is a subscribe link. Each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it would be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes or Apple Podcasts to listen to us in many ways. Some of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can find all the Broadway radio shows, including Jan's incredible review with Kyle Jarrow of SpongeBob SquarePants, who wrote the book from uh, Stagecraft that ran yesterday. Um, so let's get on to trivia. Last week I asked, one of the most famous shows to have an exclamation point after its title also had a title song that sported an exclamation point after its title. Later, though, the same name of that song showed up in another musical, but this time with different punctuation at the end. What's the name of the song, the two shows, and while you're at it, tell me the different punctuation, too. Well, the answer is Oklahoma. Oklahoma, of course, was the 1943 musical that had a title song and an exclamation point. But many moons later, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels came on the scene with a song called Oklahoma as well, but it had a question mark at the end, because one question, considering the way Sarah Gettlefinger was describing Oklahoma, uh, whether or not anybody would really want to spend any time there is another story. However, having been to Oklahoma and seeing wonderful shows at their university down there, I am going to change it to an exclamation point as well. All right. Alyssa Marr was the first to get it, followed by Mike Meany. Joseph Scoris, Robbie Roselle, Jeremy Scott Blaustein, Joe Cross, and Kathy Jones. This week, what Tony-winning playwright designed the logo for a musical that got a Tony for one of its leading performers? So if you have an answer to that trivia question, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of... Peter Felicia, Jenna Tessa Fox, Michael Portantier, Jan Simpson, Matt Tamanini, Daniela Parcell, Lena Hall, everybody else on Broadway. This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 
that hits you so hard filling you up and suddenly Sure. 